is an excellent speaker, and not only is he an excellent speaker, but well qualified. He is a national board certified licensed practical counselor, and we're so thankful that he uses his skill in that area, not only to help folks who come uh, to be with him, but in settings like this, to reach out to a number of people at one time. And, of course, we know that he today is addressing the idea of suicide prevention. And if you were here with us in our Bible class hour this morning, you know he did a wonderful, wonderful job in setting the scene, helping us to understand some mindsets, some ways of thinking, and applying that then through the story of Jacob and Esau in the Old Testament. Uh, of course, as you know, many of you know, and as he mentioned this morning, he works with the police department and with the SWAT team and things of that nature and uh, has done an excellent job with that as well and does some of their training in the st- area of stress management. And so, again, we're so thankful that he is uh, willing to share that and use that with us. In addition to uh, to being a counselor, he is married to Jackie, and they have a daughter, and I think she's grown, have grandchildren. I didn't even ask that. And so, hey, you know, you can't beat that part. And so we appreciate appreciate that as well. Member at the Meridianville Congregation, I believe, and so uh, he, he uses his talents for the Lord in, in that uh, congregation as well. There are a lot of things we could say this morning about Brother Lonnie, but we're going to turn the floor over to him. Again, appreciate him so much for being with us today. that button. Did I turn it on? Not yet. Maybe. Is it on? Normally you just hold them in, they turn green, but I have to look at this one. There we go. When you work with a SWAT team, you don't want to tell them there's a green light. That, that's a sign for a sniper to fire a rifle, so I'm always hesitant at that part. Well, I uh, am honored that you have invited me to be part of your program today, and I hope the things that we do are practical. I feel like they're going to be a little bit repetitive because I don't ever talk about suicide without also talking a little, about, a little bit about depression, but I just don't think you can underestimate the link between what's happening in the mindset of a person who is thinking about ending their lives and the circumstances that take place in their lives. Uh, depression is an overused word in our society. Uh, if something happens to you, And you have a loss. When life does not turn out like I expect it to, I suffer loss. And humans grieve all losses. That's grief. So somebody comes in and describes a loss, whether it's someone in your family passed away, or you thought that you were going to go to uh, this particular college on a scholarship and you blew your knee out. Any change when expectation doesn't meet reality qualifies as a grief. And being in grieving is different than being depressed. Something that happens to you that causes you to be sad is going to be a situation where we talk about sadness. Depression is not sadness, and sadness is not depression. Sadness is a normal thing that people go through. Uh, I guess uh, I heard it described by a guy named uh, Kevin Solomon that depression is not the opposite of happy. Depression is the opposite of vitality. And that's a big difference. See, depression is not a response to normal life circumstances. If I've got a job and I've got a family, I'm not dealing with a lot of real issues, 
but I have no vitality, that's depression. Now that can be cognitive, it can be an interpretation kind of an error, or it can have to do with, with your brain, organic brain chemistry. It can be what's going on in, inside your brain. Um, you'll notice on the board behind me there's a, a slide that, that begins a discussion on suicide. I'm going to deal with those slides at the afternoon session. Uh, and if you want those handouts, you're going to be welcome to them. They're on, on your hard drive, on, on your computer. And uh, if we don't get a lot of questions or we don't have a lot of answers <laughs> at the 3 or 3.45 session, then uh, I'll go through those slides. We're going to spend most of our time to, for the morning worship in First uh, Kings chapter 19, if you want to go there. In the scripture reading that, that came to us, First uh, Kings chapter 19, verse, verse 4, I want you to look at the loss of vitality. It's talking about Elijah the prophet. Elijah the prophet goes a day's journey into the wilderness. He sits down under a broom tree and he asks God to let him die. And he says, it is enough. Now there's a vast difference between the attitude of it is finished and it is enough. The majority of suicidal ideation that takes place in people's lives is when they've reached a point of suffering or they've reached a point where they feel helpless. They've reached a point where they feel hopeless. They've reached a point where they don't feel like they have any ability to picture the future or if they do picture the future, it's unchanging and cannot get better. And that's when people say, I've had enough. And enough is a very, very different discussion than, than it is finished. Um, I remember the first time I ever did a CrossFit workout. And if you're unfamiliar with CrossFit, CrossFit is 1940s farm work that you pay someone to make you do, okay? It used to be you did that kind of work and somebody paid you, but now they've got this big trendy thing, come to our shop and flip tractor tires and haul pigs around and pay some guy $150 an hour to yell at you to do it. We did it with the SWAT team. We'd been just typically running and doing push-ups and pull-ups, and we got this young uh, operator named Brad Snipes. And Brad was in charge of our PT. And, and I don't get paid to be a chaplain. I'm not a police officer. I'm not a shooter. I'm not an operator. I just hang out with those guys. But occasionally, I get, I get to do some cool stuff. We spent Wednesday repelling out of the rafters of the Civic Center. Now, I do teach the team how to repel. I'm their repel master. And we spent the afternoon in the South Hall. If you've ever been to Exposure, we were in the big room where Exposure takes place. We are running around on the I-beams and dropping off on ropes. And, uh, but anyway, so I, I PT with him when I can. And Brad said, hey, I want to introduce you guys to this thing called CrossFit. And it's 15 minutes of doing these four or five different exercises, but you do as many rotations of that, that set of exercises as you can for 15 to 18 minutes. The routines have names. Uh, every Memorial Day, I do a CrossFit routine called the Murph. And it's named after Michael Murphy, the special operator who died uh, in the movie uh, Lone Survivor. The Murph's a pretty, pretty simple thing. Uh, I don't do it for time, but you put a, a, a plate carrier on your body armor, you run a mile. You finish your mile, you do 100 pull-ups, 200 push-ups, 300 air squats, and run another mile. And that's the Murph. Well, this particular CrossFit exercise we did was called Fight Gone Bad. It had been written for a, a, an MMA fighter named B.J. Penn. 
And it was to help with his anaerobic conditioning. I've never been in a fight that went this bad. Okay? I mean, it was a terrible thing. Well, the guy starts explaining how CrossFit works. He says, if you do a proper reputate, a proper rep, then you count it, and then you get a point. He says, and at, at your level of fitness, talking to these young SWAT guys, said, you know, you should probably score 150 on this test. Well, that 150 number stuck in my mind. I was in my mid-40s. I thought, I'm going to get 150 on this thing. I'm going to die. And so I started doing this work. Well, it comes to find out that I'm on pace that I probably get 150. So I start sandbagging her a little bit, you know. I do what I can do real good, hard and heavy and the stuff that I'm not good at. A box jump kills me because a box jump is that high and I'm this high. And for me to do a box jump, it's like I'm competing in a a high jump in the Olympics. And so box jump, so I was kind of sandbagging my box jumps, trying to save my little legs. And I finished this workout, and I'm lying on the floor doing a pain angel. And old Brad Snipes steps over me. And I said, hey, Snipes, I got 150. How'd you do? And Brad said, all I could, and walked out of the building. I reached a point in that workout where I said, this will be enough. And Snipe said, I'm going to do it till it's finished. And he did 100% execution on 100% of the reps for the entire thing. People who think about suicide don't think about all that is required as a dad, a mom, a student, a child, a brother, a sister, a neighbor. They reach a point where instead of doing all they can, they say, this is all I will do. It is enough. And Elijah goes from a very vital person, because if you read chapter 18, he's standing on a hill in front of 450 prophets of Baal. He calls them out in a national challenge. He says, look, if you're going to serve God, serve God. If you're going to serve Baal, serve Baal. In fact, he literally uses the word, it it is hard for you to dance between two partners. And the, the ritual worship of Baal involved this ritualistic dance. And he says, how long are you going to falter? How long are you going to dance between two partners? If God is God, serve him. If Baal is God, serve him. Let, let me propose a challenge. You guys put an altar up. And I'll put an altar up. And you ask your God to light the, the altar by fire. And I'll ask my God to light the altar. And the God that answers by fire, that'll be God. Now, the legend of Baal, probably should be pronounced Baal. Baal Zebul, the... Uh, Lord and Master, the Old Testament prophets often called him Beelzebub, which means Lord of the Flies, and you know where flies hang out. But Bel, his legend was that he was supposedly flew in a chariot that was made out of a thundercloud, and that his bow shot arrows of lightning, and he had a javelin made out of lightning. So to light a little altar in Israel should be a chip shot for this guy. And so they build this altar and they pray all day and they pray all morning and they pray all afternoon. And one of the saddest verses in the Bible, it says, there was no voice. There was no answer. No one paid attention. The prophets of Baal really believe in something, yet all the energy they're putting into it, it comes out with a hollow ring. Elijah, at the time of the evening sacrifice, prepares his altar puts the rocks on the ground, puts the sticks on the altar, prepares the oxen, has it drenched in water so much so that they can fill up a trench that will hold five quarts of water, five seas of seed. And then he says, God, please let these people know that I'm your prophet and I've done this at your request. 
And while he was praying, fire fell from heaven, burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the rocks, the dirt, and evaporated the water. And then Elijah says, you take these 450 false prophets and you execute them. He goes from a national challenge, one man against 450 prophets in the face of the entire nation to being in the wilderness alone by himself in a cave and asking God to let him die. You see the difference in the loss of vitality. He's not just sad. He's not just stressed. He's reached a point in his life where his vitality has left him. Now, when he's confronted by God about what's going on, what's happening here, notice how he describes himself. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 9, the last statement in verse 9 is, Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. The children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. I'm the only one left, and they seek to take my life. Of the five things or the six things he says here, only two of them are about himself. And he paints himself in a good light. He says, I'm zealous for you or jealous for you, as the King James Version says. He says, and and I'm the only guy you've got left. I'm the only faithful dude in Israel. And everything else that he's focused on is what they're doing. One of the things about people who suffer from suicidal ideation is that they tend to focus on things that are beyond their control. And when we start looking at our lives and taking an inventory of the things that we can control, we get some power back. Typically, everybody who's thinking about suicide is either feeling helpless, or they're feeling hopeless, or they're feeling powerless, or they're feeling trapped. Most of the time, when you're not talking about an indigenous mental illness, and by the way, when when we discussed emotional intelligence... Understanding our own emotions, the ability for self-gratification, the ability for impulse control, and the ability for discipline or motivation. People who possess those four things are not mentally ill. Now, some people don't do those four things and it's a deficit. But the people who don't have a deficit, they're not mature at it, but people who can't do it. There's a difference between having a capacity for it and a deficit in it. People who don't possess the capacity for emotional intelligence, self-regulation, delayed gratification, impulse control, and motivation. Those are the people that I consider to be mentally ill. And I don't care what flavor you want to give that, whether it's a mood disorder or a personality disorder, that's the difference between mental illness and mental health. God will not hold you accountable for that which you are not responsible. If you cannot be responsible for an action... God will not count it as a sin. It would just be, you know, we would say, well, that person was born with this disposition. There's no genetic marker for a person being born with uh, a homosexual characteristic. God's not going to say something is a sin that you can't control in your life. Okay? There's nothing in the human genome. It's been mapped. They had not found that. So when somebody comes to the conclusion that, that this is how I am, this is how I'm oriented, this... That's an interpretation error. Something in your life, either your exposure to something or some kind of traumatic event or some kind of precipitating event has caused that ideal formation, sexual orientation, premature sexualization, something like that has happened. The same thing is true about suicide. If a person has an organic brain disease, 
and that organic brain disease is incurable and it leads them to suicide, they are not lost. God will not hold you accountable for that which you are not responsible. Okay? And, and, and you've got to be careful not to confuse people who have the capacity for self-efficacy and the people who don't. And people with a mental illness don't have bad character. They're not flawed somehow spiritually. The hardware of the brain, not the software of the mind, but the hardware of the brain is malformed and malfunctioning. And it is a disease and an illness. And it's no more sinful for a person to be depressed than it is sinful for a person to have cancer. Okay? What we're dealing with is if you come and cross somebody or you're dealing it with yourself and you've done these misinterpretations of life and you possess the, the capacity for self-regulation, for delayed gratification, for impulse control and understand your own emotions, but we're either in a crisis and we can't see that or for whatever reason we're not mature enough and we've practiced a pervasive lifestyle of, of not being willing to be self-reliant. That's how we're talking about intervention today. Now, if we get into some of the more uh, complex clinical details, we'll talk about that with our slides when we get into the afternoon session. But let's, let's analyze what happens with Elijah. So, so Elijah does this thing on Mount Carmel. He challenges the prophets, and God answers him by fire. Now, I personally believe that I've seen the answer to prayers in my life. You know, we, we try to make a, a career decision about, you know, me going into private practice as a counselor. Those doors opened up. We made this, a, a prayerful decision about moving to Huntsville in 1986, and those doors opened up. We've prayed lots of prayers, and I believe I've seen the answer to prayer. If God doesn't answer our prayers through providence, then why do we pray? But I've never had God light anything on fire for me. Okay? Elijah gets a, yes, Elijah, I'm listening to you, and evaporates this altar. Elijah goes from that kind of power to this situation. Chapter 19, verse 1. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he'd executed all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose, he ran for his life, and he went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there, and he himself went a day's journey into a wilderness, sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die, and he said, It is enough now, Lord, take my life. I'm no better than my father's. Elijah goes from having vitality, to having this, this power and this spiritual high, to a place where he's let a precipitating set of circumstances or some kind of precipitating event lead him into this extreme thinking. And his extreme thinking is, I don't have any control over what Jezebel is going to do to me. And I'm afraid. And so I'm going to just quit. He's trying to communicate something. He's trying to control something. And he's trying to avoid something. Those are the three things that suicidal ideation have in common. Now, now notice what happens here. His precipitating event is a message that he gets from Jezebel. Now, if you're the prophet in Israel, and, and, and by the way, in an attempt to insulate himself from this bad circumstance, in an attempt to avoid something or control something, in an attempt to become insulated, he actually becomes isolated. In an attempt to get a little bit of relief, he ends up being by himself. 
Now, sometimes it's a self-reinforcing loop because he leaves his servant. He walks as far as he can walk in a day, and then he says, I'm all alone. Well, sometimes we get in trouble because we create those circumstances ourselves. Sometimes we get hurt, we get disappointed, we get afraid, we get discouraged. And instead of doing something different, instead of controlling what we can control, we look at the things we can't control, we try to avoid them, and in an attempt to insulate ourselves, we actually end up isolating ourselves. What's the thing that makes Elijah run away? Number one, he gives the words of Jezebel more power than they should have in his life. Now, I understand that the Bible says that the power of life and death are in the tongue. What I believe the Bible means by that is that as a user of words, I should use my words with discretion. I should use my words with discernment. I should use my words for blessings and not cursing. I should use my words to pray for blessings on my enemies, not curses on my enemies. I should be careful that my words are grace seasoned with salt and it imparts uh, encouragement to the hearer. I believe that, that it's telling me as a word user to be careful how I use my words. I do not believe it teaches that I have to believe everything you tell me. And that's what happens when we get into a, a severe depression or we end up in a place where we feel like life has no hope and life has no meanings is we allow what other people say to have more power in our lives than what God has himself said. Your words... And you've got a responsibility for how you use your words. And I've got a responsibility for how I use my words. But your words only have the power that I give them. You can't make me happy. You can't make me mad. You can't make me start. You can't make me stop. I choose what I do with your words. Romans chapter 1 verse 16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is God's power to salvation to everyone who believes. If you don't buy into what God is saying, God's word doesn't really have any effect on your life, at least not till judgment. Because if you don't believe God and you don't obey God, God can't change your life. Well, if God's word is limited by whether or not I buy into it, then my words are definitely limited by whether or not you buy into them. So if somebody tells you you're a failure or you're miserable or you're a bad husband or you're a bad wife or you're stupid or you're dumb or you're ugly or you're scared or whatever, you've got to decide whether or not you're going to accept that. Jezebel sends a message to Elijah and says, I've asked the gods to intervene on my part and punish me if I don't kill you tomorrow. Well, if you send me a, a, a message that says, hey, I've asked the gods to be involved in your death and I've just left Mount Carmel where God was involved in lighting a fire, I'll send you a note back. Dear Jezebel, meet me on Mount Carmel. Wear something cool. Stand over there. I'll stand over here. You ask your gods to kill me, I'll ask my gods to kill you. We'll see how that works. But instead of Elijah looking at how life has been interpreted and what God has done for him, all of a sudden the words that Jezebel has are much more powerful in Elijah's lives than God's word was. What she says she's going to do is more powerful than what God has already demonstrated that he will do. And then when Elijah gets in this deep place where he's done and he's through and he's ready to give up, notice in his speech in verse 10 how many things are about what they're doing rather than what he can do or what God has done. 
We get into this place where we have this extreme emotional reaction to life circumstances and we forget about the power of God's Word. We forget about the power of God Himself and we start focusing on what they're doing, what they said, what they can't do. And Elijah allows the power that Jezebel has in his life to be more powerful than what God has demonstrated in his life already. I was very, very disturbed when the, the series came out on TV or on the Netflix about the uh, 13 reasons. And it was this tragic story of a teenager who had committed suicide. And, and there was this series of these are the thir- these people treated her this way at school. These people treated her this way at home. These people treated her this way on social media. And it was this, I killed myself and it's your fault. And that's just not true. If I had the power to make you miserable, I can make you happy. If, if I had the power to make you drink, then you'd be sober. If I had the power to make you kill yourself, then you'd still be alive. I got a phone call. Young principal over at Madison County High School, they had a student kill himself. Uh, he asked me to come over and speak to the students. The back story was that he was being bullied about his sexual orientation. He's being bullied on Facebook. I don't know how you can bully me on Facebook because I have the ability to block you. I don't know how you can say anything to me and make me read it on Facebook because I don't have to turn the computer on. But that was the story that these four guys had bullied him. He'd gone into a a, a very deep, uh, severe episode. His parents had taken him to Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt said, you need to leave him here. The parents took him home. And that night, he killed himself. And it was going to be blamed on these four boys because of their behavior on social media. And he asked me to come over and talk to the students. And it felt like a hornet's nest because somebody wanted blood. It's their fault that he's dead. And when he asked me to come talk to the students, I thought, I'm going to go sit in the library and they're going to bring two or three students at a time and I'm going to sit in the library all day and talk to these students. I'm walking down the hall with this young principal and we turn left and we walk not into the library but into the gym and the whole student body's in the gym. And I'm supposed to talk to this hornet's nest. And and again, I don't want you to think I'm uncaring and I don't want you to think I'm being cavalier. But they handed me the microphone and, and I said... How many of you guys were friends with Johnny? And that's not his name, of course. And about 200 kids raised their hands. So so of the 200 people that raised your hands, this young man was your friend. They, They assented that he was. And I said, and 200 of you couldn't keep him alive? And you feel the wind kind of go out of the room. Because if 200 of you who love him and liked him and were nice to him could keep him alive, then four of you didn't kill him. You get that? So let, let's talk about not whose fault it is, but that he made a decision that nobody made for him. And let's find out how we're going to get past it and how nobody else is going to do the same thing today. And that's what we spent the day talking about. And I finally did get to go to the library and see two or three students at a time for the rest of the day. Elijah lets what she says she's going to do control his next set of actions. If you give me that kind of power in your life, you're in an extremely vulnerable, unhealthy, unstable emotional place. Part of being healthy enough to continue living is understanding that I can only focus on what I can control 
And I can only do what I can do. Control the controllables and do the doables. Now once you get focused on what can I control and what can I do, the things that you don't control and the things that you can't do, you quit worrying about them. Because if my words were that much power in your life, then you'd make different choices. And if you're not making different choices than what I want you to do, then I'm not driving this bus. Same thing happens when people do, quote-unquote, spiritual suicide and they leave the church. Well, I left the church because of that youth group. I left the church because of that youth minister. I left the church because of that preacher. I left the church because of that elder. Trust me, if the preacher and the youth group and the elders were in charge, you'd still be here. They don't have the power to do that. If I can make you... If I can, by something I say, something I don't say, something I do or something I don't do, if I can make you leave Jesus, you and Jesus weren't that good of friends in the first place. I discovered that by having a teenage daughter. You have a teenage daughter, teenage boys come to your house. And you can treat them any way you want to treat them and they'll come back. It's just the weirdest thing. You can threaten them, you can make fun of them, call them what's their name. I put a kid to sleep in my garage. He came over and was playing ping pong and I was sitting in the house trying to just survive the whole thing. He came in the house and said, Hey, Mr. Jones, I noticed you have a wrestling mat in your garage. I do. I have a 10 by 10 wrestling mat. I practice Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He said, Would you like to wrestle? <laughs> <laughs> Lazarus didn't get up that fast. <laughs> I got off the couch and started toward him. Lonnie Beth stayed behind him going, No, Dad. No, come out of here, son. You know, Take your fingers like this. Put your... Uh, that's called a golf grip. Put that behind his head. Stick your elbows together. And in 17 seconds, he'll go to sleep. <laughs> Left him drooling on the mat. He came back the next night for supper. <laughs> he doesn't care how I treated him. He doesn't care I embarrassed him. He doesn't care I put him to sleep. He's a little interested in that little blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl. When you're in love with Jesus, and you're interested in what's going on here, I don't care how you treat me. I don't care what you say to me. I don't care what you don't say to me. If you and me can be friends with Jesus, that's cool. But if I have to pick between Jesus and you, I'll pick Jesus every single time. And so many times we use other people's deeds and other people's words and other people's actions as fuels for our fire to not do things. So Elijah has given her words more power. He's given her deeds more power than he's given God's word and God's deeds. And then he has this speech. I have been zealous they've torn down your altars. They've forsaken your covenant. They've killed your prophets. I'm the only guy left and they're going to kill me. Listen to what God says to Elijah. He asked him again in verse 14, what are you doing here? And Elijah gives the same speech. I think this time now it's a quieter speech. Then verse 15, the Lord said, you go and you return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. Quit running away, Elijah, and go back to the situation. When you get back there, you anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. You anoint Elisha, the son of Saphat of Abel-Mohelah. You anoint as the prophet in your place. And it shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazel, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. And I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed, and every mouth that has not kissed Baal. He said, Elijah, your speech is, they've forsaken my covenant, they've torn down your altar, you're the lone ranger, and they've killed everybody, and they're going to kill me. That's his perception. What's the truth? I'm going to have you anoint three gentlemen, and they're going to do some assassinations for me. Jezebel and Baal's people aren't killing anybody. 
But Nimshi and Elisha and Hazel are going to be doing some killing. Number one, you're not the Lone Ranger. There's 7,000 people in Israel. They've never bowed their knees or puckered their lips toward Baal. Oh, and, and it's not in this verse, but did Elijah get killed? Shake your head this way. Did Elijah even die? Not only do they not kill him, he's one of two guys in the history of the world who doesn't suffer physical death. He gets taken to whirlwind on the express train. His perception of what they've done, what they're going to do, and who he was and where he was in life has no basis in reality whatsoever. But he lost his vitality... And because he lost his vitality, he said, I'm going to quit. I'm dead. I, I wish I was dead. Just let me die. But when he looked at the reality of life, he's not the only guy left. Baal's prophets and Jezebel's servants aren't killing anybody. God's servants are going to be doing the protection and the capital punishment. There's 7,000 people who've never even looked at Baal to kiss toward him. And Elijah, you're not going to die. You're not going to get killed. Not only that, you're not even going to die. So many times when we get into a crisis, we're not looking at reality. We're only looking at an emotional response. When you run into a person or you run into yourself and you're having a severe meltdown and you're caught in, in worrying about things that you can't control, step back and ask in this situation, what do I actually control? And number two, what can I do? Control the controllables and do the doables. What do I feel... What do I know? What are my facts? What are my I feel alone. I feel isolated. I feel powerless. I feel vulnerable. I feel threatened. My people are going to be the assassins. There's 7,000 people who are as faithful as you are. Actually, they're more faithful at this point because they're not in the wilderness whining about it. And you're not even going to die. When we get into that place or we run into somebody who's in that place who says life is intolerable and in this temporary moment I've got this misconception of what life is, it's our job to understand how they feel and gently challenge them with this is what you feel. Tell me some things that you know. When your facts and your feelings match, you may just be sad, you may just have grief. But when your feelings and your facts don't match, that's when you're depressed and that's when you're vulnerable for suicide. Uh, I hope this has been helpful and practical. This afternoon, we'll be answering some questions. We'll go through some statistics and some slides. And then at uh, the evening worship, I want us to talk about how we interpret and deal with things that have happened to us or things that we've done that make us feel guilty that might lead us to suicide. Um, I know this has not been your typical sermon, but I want you to understand something about Life. God understood prior to the creation of the world that He was going to produce and create a world of imperfect people. And imperfect people behave imperfectly. He may, before He said, let there be light, He had set in motion... How can I help fix their imperfections? They're going to say things and do things that separate us in a relationship and I'm going to have set in place the ability to reconcile them. 
The worst thing that guilt does for us is it causes us to separate ourselves from God. Well, God couldn't love me because of this, or God couldn't love me because of that. God couldn't love me because of what I have done. God couldn't love me because of what I've not done. Please understand that God's love in the universe is a constant. While we were yet sinners, God demonstrated His love for us and sent Christ for us. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. Our behavior is merely an indication of whether or not we love God back in return. God's on record how much He loves us. Has nothing to do with your behavior. Has nothing to do with your choices. Has nothing to do with your past. Has nothing to do with what's been done to you. Has nothing to do with what's been done with you. Has nothing to do with what you've done. God said, our relationship is based on what I've done. And I sent Jesus to be an atoning sacrifice. So whatever it is that you think makes you unworthy, whatever it is that you think makes you unfit to live, God said, I've already made arrangements. Before I ever said, let there be light, I had planned to send light into the world. And that light would come into the world and it would conquer darkness. And that light would die on a cross and resurrect from the dead. And when you buy into that light and you die to self... And you're buried with Christ and you rise with Christ. You live a new life. That's the answer to all sadness. Doesn't mean that the problem will go away, but it means it gives you hope for living. That's the answer to the temporary problems of life because it's an eternal solution. And if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and you're willing to change the way you think, that's called repentance, and you're willing to confess Him as your Lord and let Him be in control, and then you die to self and you're buried with Christ and you rise again, that's when you have real hope in the world. And not just in this world, but in the world to come. And if you're here, and you're not at peace with God, you can't be at peace with anything. Now, being at peace with God is not going to fix your marriage. Being at peace with God is not going to solve your finances. Being at peace with God is not going to solve your cancer. Those are temporary conditions. God's salvation is not just permanent, but it's eternal. And if you're here today and you're not at peace with God, God offers you that solution by faith, repentance, confession, and baptism, to be one with Him, to be reconciled, and you and God together can deal with this temporary planet as He prepares you for eternity. If we can help you this morning with your salvation, come this morning while we stand and while we sing. I am mine no more. I am mine no more. I've been is my Lord. Jesus is my Lord. And He rules my life. Jesus is my Lord. He will come Ah. Uh...
I am mine no more. I've been born with blood. I am mine no more. Lonnie, thank you very much for the two lessons this morning. We appreciate it. I have a couple of announcements. I know that most of you probably have already picked a bulletin up, at least I hope that you have anyway. So let's remember those that are in the bulletin, those that are sick, those that are asking for our prayers, those that are confined to their homes, can't get out, those that are in the nursing homes, assisted living. Let's remember all of them. Uh, I was handed this announcement. Tommy Fields, this is the husband of Gail Gillett was taken to the hospital in Birmingham this morning. We don't have any details at this time, but let's remember uh, him in our prayers. Okay, perk up on this announcement and listen closely. <clears throat> there is a sign-up sheet called Food Group Interest List on the desk out in the lobby. We have food committee groups here at Midway, like a lot of congregations do, and they are recruiting. Uh, they need people to prepare food. So if that is something that you are interested in doing, that you're, you would like to do, then that sheet or those sheets are out there on that desk. Go by and sign your name up. Now this is not limited to women only. I was told that men can sign up for this as well. So if you're a man and you sign, you know, can cook really good, and there's a lot of men that can cook really good, then go ahead and sign up for that list. But they do need recruits in these food groups, and I know that they would appreciate that very, very much. Thank you so much for being here this morning. We appreciate your presence. Please make your plans to be back this afternoon at 3.30, and we'll continue our workshop, 3.30, and then we'll have our 5 o'clock uh, evening service after that, we'll have the singing of one more song, our closing song, and then after that, Derek Crump will dismiss us in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for loving me, and thank you, Lord, for blessing me. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole and saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for loving me. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Please reveal your will for me so I can serve you for eternity. Use my life in every way. Take hold of it today. I want to thank you, Lord, for loving me. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for another first day of the week. That as your children, we can come together and to worship and glorify you. We pray that our services have been in accordance to your will, and we know that we can know exactly what you want by your will. We give you thanks.